I like that. I like to watch her sing. You, I just thought you were going to have a fit up here. <laughs> Linda and I have lived in the same house for 25 years this summer. And oftentimes she will say to me, we need to do a little updating. And I said, well, you know, it still works. But as time has gone by, we agreed this year that maybe we would take our screened-in back porch and turn it into a room so it would be a little more favorable to our needs. So I had Steve Hayden to come over. He looked at it, and he said, yeah, it's going to be a simple project. He said, and it will be inexpensive. Well, I like those two words. It's going to be simple. It's going to be inexpensive. And so he got there, and, and they're doing some work, and he comes in and says, I have some bad news. Well, what? He said, the foundation is going to have to be replaced. It's not good. I said, what's wrong with the foundation? He said, let me show you. So he took me out there, and whoever had built on the porch had, had about a third or a fourth of it where they didn't pour any concrete. And so there was just tile on top of the sand. And I said, well, okay, we're going to have to fix the foundation. And then I said, by the way, while you're doing this, we have had a few leaks out there. Would you check the roof? And so he came back in later and he said, I got some bad news. And I said, what is it? He said, I don't know why that roof hasn't fallen in. He said, it's just a, it's, we got to replace the roof. Now, I don't have anything left. I mean, the roof is gone. The foundation is gone. There wasn't anything else out there anyway other than some screens. Why is it that when we try to do something, it never turns out the way we think it's going to turn out? Why are there so many problems that interrupt a simple and inexpensive plan? Edward A. Murphy was an engineer working with the Air Force in 1949 on a project to discover how much deceleration a body could stand when it comes to a sudden stop. He found out in the experiment that the transducer had been wired up wrong. He was frustrated with the engineer who had worked on it, and he made the statement that if there is any way to do it wrong, he'll find it. Well, the project manager overheard that, and he dubbed it as Murphy's Law. If anything can go wrong, it will. And then there's Hartman's automotive laws. Nothing minor ever happens to a car on the weekend. Nothing minor ever happens to a car on a trip. Nothing minor ever happens to a car. And then there's Cannon's cogent comment, the leak in the roof is never in the same location as the drip. Why do so many things go wrong? That's our response. When all these things go wrong, we want to know why. Irma Bombeck said, if life's a bowl of cherries, why am I in the pits? Well, there are many people in the Bible who ask the question concerning bad times in their life, why did this happen? For instance, when the Hebrews left Egyptian bondage, they go through the wilderness to the promised land, and while they were struggling through the wilderness, they said in Numbers 11, why did we ever leave Egypt? Why did we even attempt this? I mean, nothing has gone right for us. And then there's a story of Gideon, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. You might recall that during his time, the Midianites would sweep down on the Hebrews, destroy their crops, and 
Gideon at that point was hiding when we are introduced to him. He is hiding from the Midianites in the winepress, and an angel appeared to him. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? You're telling me that God is with us? Don't you know what has been going on? Don't you know the suffering we've been enduring at the hands of the Midianites? No, he says, the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of the Midianites. Job went through some struggles in his life, and he also asked the question as why. He says, why hast thou set me as thy target? Even Jesus asked the question of why. While Jesus was on the cross dying for your sins, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, today I want us to look at the whys of Habakkuk. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. Now, that's one of those minor prophets. It's close to the beginning of the New Testament, but Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and thou wilt not hear? I cry out to thee violence, yet thou dost not save. Why dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people, who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. We don't know a lot about Habakkuk. He is not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. This is the only place in his book. It is generally believed that the book of Habakkuk was written during the decline of the Syrian Empire and the rise of the Babylonian Empire during that period of time. So it would be about 612 B.C. to 587 B.C. During that period of time, it is thought that Habakkuk wrote this prophecy. At the time of the writing, Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom was a little more complex during that time. Josiah, the boy king, had come to the throne, and he led the people into a great revival. When Josiah was the king, there was a great move of God. There was a great revival that went on in the land. But then he died. 
When he died, Jehoiakim came to the throne, and he then led the people of Israel back away from God and back into sin. So that is what Habakkuk is seeing, and he's distraught. He is remembering that time when Josiah had led the people of Israel after God, that there was a great move of the Spirit. And now then they had turned away from God, and as he looked at what had happened, he was distraught by it all. I think probably some of you would fit into that category. When we look at our country and, and we read the history about our Christian heritage and, and how we, we built this nation upon the Word of God and so forth, when we look at our heritage and then we see where we have come, we too are distraught by what we see and don't understand it. We don't understand those things. We don't understand. And God seems to be a mystery. Why does God allow these things? And yet God had told us that's the way it would be in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. He said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So sometimes God is a mystery to us we don't understand. Habakkuk had some questions to God. Was God indifferent to things? Was He indifferent to the plight of Israel at that time? In verse number 2, He says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and Thou wilt not hear? I cry out to Thee, violence, yet Thou dost not save. Was was God indifferent? Josiah had led in this revival. They turned to him. Jehoiakim had led them into evil. Why didn't God do something? Why didn't God stop this? God had sent revival and now they went away from God. Why didn't God do something? Did He not care? Was God inactive in the affairs of man? In verse 4, therefore the law is ignored. And justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Why didn't God do something? It seems that God is tolerating disobedience and the perversion of justice. So, God, why didn't you do something? Are you not active in the affairs of man? Lord, when you see this decline, when you see this perversion of justice, when you see these things, Lord, are, are you simply not involved in the affairs of man? And then Habakkuk said, Lord, it looks to me like this is inconsistent with your character, with who you are. In verse number 13, he says, Thine eyes are too pure to approve evil, and thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. Why dost thou look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why art thou silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? As Habakkuk looked at what was happening, he said, God... This seems to be inconsistent with who you are. You are holy. He says that in verse number 12. God, you are holy. And he says that the people are suffering and helpless in verse 14. Why hast thou made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, gather them together to their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. In other words, he is saying, God... If you are loving and caring and all-powerful, why do you allow these things to happen? God, you are holy. You are loving. 
You have all power. So why are you allowing good people to suffer at the hands of those who are evil? And then he says the Chaldeans are puffed up with arrogance and pride. You notice in verse 16, he says, Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? You see, they worship pagan gods and goddesses. They worship the god of magic. They burned incense to their fishing net. He says, Lord, whenever I look at this, I see that you are holy. I see that your people are suffering. I see that the enemy is puffed up with violence, and I don't understand it. Now, the truth is, we don't understand the ways of God, do we? That was a question. No. A lot of the times we simply do not understand the ways of God. He says there that you don't understand my ways. Even that's true with believers. In verse number 5, he says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe if I told you. God says, I'm going to do something here, and you wouldn't believe it if I told you what it is, that I'm going to use evil for my purposes. I'm going to use the Chaldeans for my purposes. Unbelievers don't understand it. In verse number 11, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. You know, the the evil do not understand that God sometimes uses them for His purposes. What does He do? Well, sometimes He uses those who are evil to wake us up. And uh, folks, I... I I think that even today that we see some of that, that we are beginning. I'm praying and I'm hoping and I'm believing that the people of God are beginning to wake up. Sometimes God uses those who are evil to wake us up. Sometimes it's for the purpose of discipline. Sometimes it's so that we might see our character. And sometimes it's to teach us the things that we need to know. God's ways sometimes are misunderstood or they can be confusing to us. And it's not easy for us to respond correctly when these things happen. Matthew Henry said it is sad to see bad men warming their hands at those flames which are devouring all that is good in a nation and stirring up the fire too. How did Habakkuk respond to the message of God when he says, God, I'm wondering about some things here. And God told him, said, well, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. How did he respond to the message of God that God was going to use the Chaldeans? Well, first of all, he was wondering, why was this happening? See, he had some questions about God. In verse number 2, he says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and thou will not answer? He said, God, why are you silent to my prayers? Lord, when I pray, why are you silent? Why, Why don't you say something? Why don't you do something? Why are you silent? Lord, why are you using the Chaldeans, these people who are evil, for your holy purposes? Why are you doing that? He had some questions about God. He had some questions about Israel. Why had Israel turned into sin? They'd experienced the taste of revival under the leadership of Josiah. They'd had a great move of the Spirit of God. Now then, why did they turn to evil? Why did they turn away from God and they turned to that that was evil? Their leaders had been disobedient to God. Those who were wealthy exploited those who were poor. 
The law was being ignored in verse number 4. Therefore, for the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. In other words, the leaders disobeyed the law of God. They exploited the poor. And then when they were caught, they bribed the officials. He says, Lord, why are you allowing these things? One commentator said the law is slack, it's silent. It breathes not. Its pulse beats not. In other words, the law had no power over them. It was lifeless. So he's wondering. Not I'm wondering about these things concerning you. I'm wondering about Israel, why this happened. And then he was waiting in chapter 2, verse 1. He said, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. And so now then, Habakkuk is wondering about the Lord, and then he waits on God. Okay, God, I'm waiting for you to explain this to me. And the Lord began to explain it. Chapter 2, verse number 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. You know what God is saying? This good word for us. He's saying that my people are to live by faith in my promise. We don't live by what we see. Our faith is not in how we feel. Our faith is in the promises of God. He says, the just shall live by faith. Matthew Henry wrote, During the captivity, good people shall support themselves and live comfortably by faith in these precious promises while the performance of them is deferred. We might be waiting for a while, but we wait in faith. We wait in the promises of God, believing that they ultimately will be fulfilled. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas. Folks, it may not look like it today, but let me tell you, one day the glory of God will cover the earth. One day the glory of God will fill this earth. And that is the promise that he made there to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was wondering about all these bad things that were happening. And God says, you just trust in me, Habakkuk, because my glory will fill the earth. And then he said in chapter 2, verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Matthew Henry wrote, they have laid waste his temple at Jerusalem but he has a temple above that is out of the reach of their rage and malice, but within the reach of his people's faith and prayers. Did you notice he says the Lord is in his holy temple? The Lord. The significance there is that the Lord is different from the gods of the Chaldeans. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 31, uh, 31 indeed, their rock is not like our rock. The Lord is in His holy temples. He is different from the gods of the Chaldeans. Yes, they have all of these gods. Yes, they are powerful. Yes, they are swift. But the Lord is different. And He is in His holy temple. I like that song, Steve. I'm not sure what the name is. We sing, Our God. Our God is greater. You know, if you think of that song, if you listen to that song, understanding that in comparison... To the false gods of this world, what we are singing is our God is greater. 
Our God is mighty. Our God is powerful. Our God is greater than the, than the gods, the false gods of this world. And that is exactly what he is saying here. The Lord is in his holy temple and all the world will keep silent before him. When I was a boy and I used to go to church, that verse of Scripture was used to keep us quiet. They said, you know, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Sit down. That's not at all what that verse means within its context. You know, people get all bent out of shape. You all come in, you're seeing each other, and you're greeting each other, and you're smiling and so forth. And some people get, it thrills me to death to see that because you haven't seen each other all week, and you're glad to see each other. That's not what that verse is about. Within the context of the verse, what he is saying is that one day God's going to silence their idolatry. One commentator wrote, he will strike the idolaters as dumb as their idols. Let all the earth keep silent before him. All, all, of the, all of the puffed up arrogance of the Chaldeans, they will be silent before him. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. One day God is going to silence all of the immorality that ravages our homes, our families, our churches, and our land. One day God's going to silence it. One day God is going to silence war. We have all the instruments of war. We have all the wars that are going on around the world. There's coming a day when the machinery of war is going to be beaten into plowshares. He is going to silence it all. And He will reign supreme. The Lord is in His holy temple. Folks, that's what we need to remember. Sometimes when we become distraught and we are frustrated and we're about ready to give up, remember the Lord is in His holy temple. And when He understood that, when Habakkuk understood that, then he began to worship. He was wondering, God, why are these things happening? And then he waited on God to speak to him. And when he understood, he began to worship. He prayed in chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Verse 2, you see it. Lord, I've heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Revive thy work. That's what he's praying, revive thy work. Isn't that our prayers today, Lord? Revive your work. Move in our midst and revive your work. We pray that. Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. Make it known. We pray, God, make yourself known to this world. This world doesn't know you. Make yourself known to this world. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, be merciful to us. We are not perfect. We have not responded perfectly. We have not walked perfectly. Lord, be merciful to us. He prays and then he ponders the invasion. In chapter 3, verse 16, I heard my inward parts trembled at the sound. My lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. He thinks about the invasion that is going to take place and then he thinks about God. God, you've been faithful in the past. You're faithful to me today, right now, this moment. I believe that you'll be faithful as we go through this. Do you believe that? I mean, you look back in the past and say, Oh, God's been so faithful to me. 
God's been so good. He's been so dependable. God has been faithful in the past. He's faithful at this moment, is He not? I mean, at this moment, He's faithful to you. So He says He'll be faithful in the days to come. So He prays, and then He ponders these things, and then He praises God as He moves from trembling to triumph. Now, in chapter 3, verse 17, He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines... Though the yield of the olive should fall, should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, what he is acknowledging is that Israel is going to lose everything. They are, the Chaldeans are coming, and they are going to lose everything. But look at the 18th verse. Yet, I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He says, even though that is true, I will rejoice in God. I will rejoice in Him. When I look at this story, this little booklet of Habakkuk, I see him distraught over what he saw as Israel had turned away from the Lord. And he spends some time wondering, God, why has this happened? Waiting on the Lord. And then he goes from there to worshiping the Lord. Because God is sufficient. As I read this, I think of our own country, our own nation, and we also are at the crossroads. Donna Kaczynski wrote, I believe that America is very close to being in the same sinful position that Judah found herself in. You know the statistics of our moral decline from 1960 to 1990. There has been a 560% increase in violent crime, 419% increase in illegitimate births, 200% increase in teenage suicide, a drop of 80 points in the SAT scores. Why is that? Why is that? Could it be that in 1962... We took organized prayer out of the public classroom. Could it be that in 1973, the United States Supreme Court legalized unrestricted abortion? Could it be that on the Internet, 60% of websites are pornographic? Could it be because we have our in the process of accepting homosexuality as an alternate lifestyle that is acceptable. We all know the moral decline that is taking place in our country. And I do believe that we are at a crossroads as a nation. Which way will we go? I don't know. What will we as a nation do? I don't know. You see, bad times confuse us, especially if we have enjoyed a godly history, as did Israel. They had been blessed under the godly reign of Josiah, and now they are being judged because of the ungodly reign of Jehoiakim. When I look at our own country, we have been blessed by the faith of those who preceded us, and now we are dealing with the consequences of our own lack of faith. What will we do? 
I believe that there are two paths before us. We can have revival if we as individuals get our hearts right with the Lord. And if we do not, then I think we face ruin, perhaps at the hands of the Chaldeans. But we have come to a crossroads. And it's not a decision that America makes. It is a decision that individuals make. What will you do? Will it be revival or ruin in your life? Our gracious Father, we come to a time when we consider our standing before you. And Lord, I pray that you might examine our hearts and show us as you see them. And I pray, Father, that today we might cry out, Oh, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I pray, Father, that it will begin today in our hearts. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand and the choir will sing a hymn of invitation and opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. If you're here without Christ, would you trust Him today? Would you commit your life to Him? If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. Stand with me, please, as we stand. They sing. As they do, you come. I'll greet you.